This is the visible hand. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Nicola Mastro Rocco, who is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Bologna. Today we're going to talk about his paper, State Capacity as an Organizational Problem, Evidence from the Growth of the U.S. State over 100 Years, which is joined with Eduardo Teso. Nicola, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Jordi. Very happy to be here. Nicola, what is state capacity? Let me start with a, a quote from uh, a sociologist. Uh, it's the uh, infrastructural power, this is a definition from man, uh, to implement uh, activities uh, across the realm. State capacity is the capacity to uh, raise revenues, uh, to provide public goods over a vast uh, territory, to enforce a uh, monopoly of power. Um, and of course, it's a very complicated concept that has been widely studied. In this paper, we focused on state capacity as an engine for effective states. So the capacity, as I said, to raise revenues and provide public goods over the territory. So would another name for state capacity be state? Because, you know, if we think about the Neanderthals, well, there was no state there. Another way Absolutely. of saying is there is no state capacity. If we look about modern societies and countries, there are states that do the things that you have described, raise revenues, provide public goods, or or sometimes private goods. Um, you know, it's just the like how important, embedded, developed a state is in a society. Yes, absolutely. I can agree with that. And then uh, using your definition, you can have different levels of efficiency in providing what a state should be doing. And so comes the capacity component uh, in it. You know, it, it might seem intuitive, but maybe you can remind us about why uh, studying state capacity is important and, and what do we know about it, you know, in the literature, let's say prior to the contribution that you do in this paper. Yes, I can certainly do that. Now, state capacity, uh, given the, you know, the, the importance of it, has been widely studied across so many different disciplines. And it's, of course, very difficult to provide um, you know, a, a fair summary across all of them. Certainly in economics and in uh, political science, um, the literature is enormous, and it goes back to the work of Tilly. Um, there has been a, a big emphasis in understanding what are the incentives uh, to set up a state apparatus. And the literature has touched upon many things. Economic development, one, uh, the threat of uh, an ex the, the, the external threat, for example, the threat of a war as an engine that is basically boosting the incentives to raise revenues, uh, to fight this war, and then this is an infrastructure that remains. The need uh, of citizens to solve collective action problems, uh, or also the desire of rulers to extract rents. The point uh, um, is that most of the literature is indeed uh, focused this step. So how to set up the incentives to have state capacity. And what we um, do here, um, and we're going to talk more in a second, is basically to do the following step. So let's take these incentives as given. Uh, how does a state actually organize itself to do uh, what it's supposed to do? Well, let me rephrase this. The literature has looked at the demand or the determinants of the demand 
and you are interested in this paper on the supply or the technology uh, that is embedded in this supply function of the state capacity? Precisely. It's a very good way to put it. So can you, I mean, you already mentioned that you are going to focus on this state capacity as as the organization, how the, the state is, is organized. Uh, obviously, in the title uh, of the paper, it says the U.S. state. So clearly, it's going to be a paper about the about the U.S. Um, what type of data do you use to uh, study the development of the state capacity in the U.S. over these hundred years that you are promising in the title? Um, so um, this is an important question because, of course, uh, studying the development uh, uh, of the organization of a state uh, over a long period of time is tricky for two reasons. Uh, reason number one is, of course, that successful example of state creation, they happen in the past and sometimes in the distant past. And uh, in, uh, in some instances in developing countries, they're happening as we speak. And so it would be more difficult to take this longer approach. Uh, we uh, focus on the US, which, as you said, is, is just one case, which we hope is going to be generalizable enough. Um, and we rely on uh, the protagonist, basically, of our paper is this document called the US Official Register, which is a biennial document, a document that is published every two years, that includes the full roster, really, basically, of the people that have worked in the US federal bureaucracy. So we focus on the US, um, which, as you said, is just one uh, specific example, which we hope uh, uh, is going to be generalizable enough. Um, and the protagonist of the paper is this document uh, called the US Official Register, which is a biennial document published every two years that includes the full roster of people that have worked in the federal bureaucracy. What do you know uh, about these people? So we have uh, a lot of information uh, about them. We know um, where they were born. Uh, we know uh, what do they do in the federal bureaucracy and where do they do it. We know uh, where, uh, where they employed for the first time when they entered the bureaucracy. We know, of course, their task and, and their position in the organization. And we also know their salary, their compensation. By what they do and their task, you mean you know their job title. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, what we do, um, we complement this uh, um, uh, data uh, that we have in the US official register, which by the way, the so this, this comes in PDF. So a large effort that took us years was the digitization uh, of uh, this uh, uh, information in tabular format. Uh, the size of the book of the U.S. federal bureaucracy uh, is already giving you an indication of uh, the, the growth uh, of the U.S. federal bureaucracy. The book uh, in 1817 was uh, 13 pages, uh, and it was more than 1,000 pages in 1905. We focus on the, the, the period 1817-1905. And what we do, we complement this data with additional data sources. So uh, first of all, we geolocalized all the location of employment. And that was uh, not an easy task because, of course, counties and counties' boundaries do change over time. Uh, and so we had to harmonize counties' boundaries, and we uh, used 1890 as, uh, uh, as a benchmark. Um, and then uh, after that, uh, what was important for us was to construct the hierarchy of the organization and the position, the job position uh, 
uh, within this hierarchy. And I'll stop here, uh, but I can give you, of course, uh, many more informations about what we do there. Sure. You are constructing this hierarchy. I guess that from some perspective, the job titles can give you an indication. Did you encounter like job titles for which you were not able to tell where is that person high or low? Because yes. especially so, these are like 19th century job titles, it is not clear yeah. what the officer of this or the registrar of that might actually mean. Yeah. Yes. So uh, first of all, let me tell you um, the uh, categories that we have. We have basically um, five categories uh, when it comes to the job titles. So the first is basically the head uh, of the departments, the head of bureaus, the head of office. Then we have a second category, which is all the people with supervisory power. Uh, that would be the chief clerk, for example. The second, the third category, sorry, is the backbone of the bureaucracy, which is the clerical jobs. Then we have a fourth category, which, which is the professional jobs. So whoever is hired to do a professional job, such as a doctor or an engineer or a plumber. No, so, sorry, I'm going to interrupt you here for a second because I was um, wondering why the clerks come above the professionals. Maybe this is like a, a feature of the 19th century, but you know, in, in 21st century parlance, you will think that in whatever, you know, like job pyramid, uh, the, the professionals as doctors or engineers will be above the clerks. This question fits very much with, with the previous one. Um, sometimes uh, just the title of, uh, the, just the job title was not enough. And so we relied a lot on historical accounts. Uh, in particular, there was a document published by the Department of Labor very conveniently in 1904, which is the end of our sample period, uh, with the hierarchies of uh, job title back then. And to the specific question to ask, uh, um, the, I guess I have two answers, one very short and another one more elaborated. The short one, the salary is helping a lot. So the clerks are constantly paid more than the average professional. And uh, the more elaborated one, I can even summarize it. The clerks are literally the go-to person within the bureaucracy. Those are the person that know how to do the job. Uh, whereas, you know, a professional is hired for a one-off task, whereas a clerk is responsible for some specific function of that specific office in that department. Wonderful. And the fifth category is low skill. Indeed. So this paper then has two parts. Um, the first part is uh, to document a set of descriptive facts about how the U.S. government, uh, the federal government grew. You, you have said, well... One first fact is that the book went from 13 pages to a thousand pages, right? So it clearly grew, you know, in, in quantity, but, you know, but, but the, the, the quality, the type, you know, uh, through which it grew is, is the first part of the paper. The second is to try to explain why it grew the way that it did, specifically in terms of offering a theoretical explanation for this type of growth, focusing first, uh, on this first part, what are the descriptive facts that uh, you want to emphasize about the development of the U.S. state? Yes, so we uh, show three main sets of descriptive facts. So we start by focusing on the, the following question. Where did the state uh, grow? Um, and uh, uh, by exploiting uh, the data that I described before, 
we see a constant pattern. We see uh, a relatively slow state growth until the 60s and a change of speed after that, a very high growth thereafter. And uh, then we ask um, ourselves, what are the main drivers uh, of, uh, uh, of growth? Uh, and so um, we basically decompose, uh, we identify three. One is the number of function. Uh, so what does the state do? The second is where does the state go and is? And the third is the intensity of this function. And what we, what we, we decompose basically the growth that we see, that we observe, and we see that in the first period, uh, everything is basically driven by function and intensity, but very, very little if none on uh, the state reaches more location. Whereas after the 60s, the main driver of growth is indeed the expansion of the state across the territory. The second big descriptive fact that we show is where did the state grow? And this is basically composed by two parts. The first is relying on the, on the, on the literature. And we show indeed that economic growth, uh, which we measure with manufacturing, um, which is the only consistent measure that we have back then in the census, is actually uh, associated with state present. This is, this is a result that we know. But so what we are here... Can I just, uh, just stop here? And uh, I obviously want to hear about the third fact, but... Mm -hmm. but it, so these two facts that that you have mentioned, uh, number one, before 1860, the uh, state presence became more intense, okay, in that it was doing more things. Presumably, this means that the number of job titles that you find, you know, become slightly different, right? Um, no, we measure it with the number of bureaus. Oh, number, yeah, okay, the number of bureaus, okay. Uh, so be, I don't know, at some point, there was only agriculture, and then it became agriculture and something else, manufacturing or, or trade or war or whatever mm -hmm. it was. Okay. And, and the second is that within these bureaus, there were more people, right? Yes. That's what you mean by the intensity. But you say oh, before 1860, there was no increase in the number of locations. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Let's say there was no uh, presence of the federal government in, let's say, Montana. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the second fact that you have mentioned, it seems that economic growth is driving the arrival of the state uh, into certain geographical areas. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is. Uh, I wanted to to interrupt you here to link these two things uh, for two reasons. Number one is to provide an explanation that is not that seems kind of mechanical, uh, and the second is to uh, interrogate. Uh, if this mechanical explanation is true, how generalizable the case of the U.S. is to other settings, okay? So something that happened to the U.S. during this period is that the frontier moved to the West, correct? It's in, in some sense, you could say that, well, the country became geographically bigger. So maybe a obvious explanation of the fact that the, the, the state was moving to certain locations, maybe at some point, not so much before that and so on. It's just that, well, certain areas, certain geographical areas were being colonized. People were arriving. And as people arrive, that's where the state has to go. Hence the second correlation that you uncover in your second fact. Will that be like another explanation? There was nobody in Montana other than, of course, the Native Americans, the indigenous nations that 
Uh, and then at some point, the white settlers arrive and they, they carry the state with them. Thanks for the question, because it's very important. Let me clarify. So first of all, um, when we say the state reaches more location, uh, we're basically we're talking about uh, the share of counties existing in any given year. Right. So suppose that I'm telling you in 1840 or in 1850, the state is reaching more location. This basically means that in the existing counties of the U.S. federal government, there is an, a federal uh, bureaucrat that is showing up. So it would not include the West, it would not include places, Montana rather than, I don't know, uh, uh, Oregon, where there is no known counties. That's uh, answer number one. So, so, so the number of counties is increasing, but your your uh, stylized fact is on the percentage of counties uh, among those increasing. Okay. Precisely. And the second, the second important uh, answer to this is that you're right, there is the frontier and there is actually very recent and, and amazing work on the expansion of the frontier. So all the results that I'm going to talk about, all of them, are robust if we use only the set of counties present in the United States in 1817, in 1820. So we, we, we use those, so we're basically excluding completely the expansion to the West and nothing changes. Okay, wonderful. Third fact then. The third fact, which is actually probably the uh, even most related to your work, uh, Jordi, is we ask how did the organization of the state uh, evolve? And even in here, we clearly identify two different periods, two different phases. In the first period, which goes from the beginning of our sample, 1817 to the 1860s, uh, the organization of the state was characterized by a very high relevance of employee turnover and a very tight link between workers and their supervisor careers. Moreover, there was basically no span of control. So there was very little delegation to power, or sorry, delegation of power, apologies, to location away from DC. After the 60s, basically all these patterns change. The employee turnover is less and less relevant there is a less tight link between workers and supervisor careers, but more importantly, we see a vast increase in delegation of power away from DC. So these are the three facts that we established in the first part of the paper. So I, I want to be uh, specific about what is it that you're measuring here, because uh, when you use words such as delegation of power, my eyes turn into dollars because this is like a notoriously difficult thing to measure. So. Uh, just to be clear, what you mean by delegation of power or your proxy for delegation of power is the number of managers, uh, that is the uh, workers on your second category of occupations um, in that hierarchy of five categories that you mentioned earlier that are not based in DC, mm -hmm. that are based in the regional offices of the federal government. So your implication is, well, if we find a manager there or a supervisor, somebody with a supervisor or manager uh, title there, that must mean that somehow they are taking decisions that previously were being taken by the federal government uh, in Washington. 
precisely that. And we do then a step forward. So on top of doing exactly what you said, observing that in the second part of the period, that the number of field managers, as you said, starts growing. We also then document the link between an employee and uh, uh, his or her supervisor, uh, which we can uh, infer from the structure of the US official register. So there's a chief clerk, Jordi, and then there is a clerk, Nicola. And we can compute the uh, probability, so the number of, so the, the, the share of, uh, let me rephrase it, the link between employees and supervisors' career. So we can basically observe uh, what is, how likely it is that if your supervisor is leaving, you're leaving too. And we can compute this coefficient in different points in times. And we observe that at the beginning of the sample period or in the first uh, phase, um, that if, uh, if, uh, if a supervisor was leaving, uh, the probability that employees, these employees were leaving was around 33%. And it drops to 18% uh, when you move to the second part uh, of the sample period after the 60s. Sure. This is this is fine. Okay, we mentioned earlier the first two facts. Uh, now we are talking about the third fact. I, I am wondering why you are putting the uh, findings on the employee turnover and the findings on the what you call the delegation of power. Okay, the, the number of managers in the regional offices in the in the in the same basket of third fact because you know these are potentially different phenomena, right? Like one of them is, yes, there is a lot of turnover and then it goes down and the link between the turnover of an employee and the supervisor weakens. That's fine. That's one thing. The other thing is there is a higher number of supervisors in the regional offices. What do these two things have to do with each other? No, I think point taken. Actually, I think it's a very good suggestion. Uh, in our mind, these two things are part of what we maybe too vaguely call the evolution of the organization of the state over time. Whereas the first two facts were about the growth and where, how does this growth actually, uh, how does this growth correlate uh, with uh, uh, demands and distance? The third fact is really about the organization, but I, you know, I take your point. I see where you're going, and I think it's a good suggestion. We can actually think more about uh, how to pitch these two different findings. So, 1860 is a, a midpoint in your sample. It is also a point in which a lot of things happened. So, so number one, uh, obviously, there was a civil war around that period. I don't know exactly when, but broadly speaking. 61. Okay, 61. So almost there in the in the cut, in your cutoff point. Uh, the second is that the you know the the transport links became better broadly speaking around that area. There's obviously there's no discontinuity there, but uh the third thing was something called the Pemberton or Pendleton Act that takes place maybe slightly later, but but uh, you know, not so far from 1860. In principle, you know, if you cut the data at that point, you know, we could attribute, you know, in the in the absence of any theory, um, we could attribute this 
these facts, you know, to any of these phenomena or maybe even something else. Um, before we move into thinking about how these things or others might might explain these facts, can you uh, can you describe the type of the type of theory, the type of uh, driving forces that you have in mind before we get into the evidence, but that you have in mind that that uh, uh, can potentially explain why the state developed uh, in the way that it did in terms of both increasing locations of you know after 1860 and then the decreasing turnover, the increasing managerial positions, and so on. Yes. Um, so the way uh, we interpret the descriptive facts that we have discussed so far is really through the lens of agency theory. Agency theory that are you know very common in any organization. Um, there's a, a, a principal um, who has to monitor and control the uh, agents. What we argue uh, is that this agency theory are particularly relevant for a state, because of course um, the state employs a lot uh, of individuals and over a vast territory. Um, we use this agency theory um, and uh, we look at our descriptive facts. And what do we see? We see that in 1817, uh, between 1817 and 1860, so the first period, uh, one thing um, that it's so it's sort of uh, commonly uh, known and accepted is that there are very high monitoring costs, exactly because it's very difficult to reach destination, uh, to communicate, and to monitor. And so in this situation, uh, it might be that the optimal form of organization is indeed a personal organization. And there is a, 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 a great evidence from historical accounts uh, where um, important uh, figures in the bureaucracy declare that they really need to rely on networks, on their personal network, to find trustworthy workers, uh, to find someone that they trust, because of course you need to, you have a lower need to monitor them. And then of course this means that uh, because all of this is relying on personal connection, it's enough that this person moved that there is high turnover, which we, is what we see. Um, and not just that, uh, the personal network is limited by definition. So there is a limited supply of trustworthy individuals, which is very consistent with the slow state growth and little delegation of power that we have discussed and we, we observe in the first part. In the second period, uh, there are technological innovation. And our goal is really to, to, to basically document the development of the state when intertwined with these technological innovations. There are some technological innovations which we are going to talk later and that we exploit, namely the railroad expansion and the telegraph, which, what do they do? Well, they decrease the monitoring cost. Uh, and so the optimal organization now is changing. It becomes you know, more Weberian, a bureaucratic organization where it's easy or it's easier, sorry, to delegate power. There is less reliance on turnover and, and therefore higher state growth. So this is the theory that we have in mind. And what we do then, we try to test this uh, theory. Before you test it, let me, let me interrogate um, how that theory fits into the, uh, into the facts that we have uh, just gone through, okay? So let's just imagine, okay, we have like a DC and Montana, okay? Just to, you know, to give a start example of uh, two places that are very far apart. Hmm? You are saying, okay, well, in 1817, Montana was really far, okay? So this, the federal government said, you know what? 
we could set up an office there, but if we set up an office, they're going to do whatever the hell they want. It's just not worth it. Okay. Um, because we cannot control them in any way. Okay. So I think that that, that is fine. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. That chimes with your, like, a, you know, the federal government grew in DC and so on, but not, it didn't expand uh, so much to locations that were very far. Okay. I mean, especially again, Montana is obviously a state that is not very highly populated today. I presume that that was the same at the time. So your regressions about the second fact, you know, like uh, areas that have less economic development, less likely to set up a state, uh, a branch of the federal government and so on. Okay, so this, this makes sense. Now, imagine that I do set up a, an office there, okay? Now I have it conditional on I have set up an office. Hmm? Okay, it's not immediately obvious to me why in this case delegation is associated with whether I have a manager there or not, right? Because as you have said, it is it is impossible for me to take the, the decisions about what the Montana branch should be doing, right? Like I am, I don't know, two weeks by you know, by horse ride away from them. They have to do whatever they want. Shouldn't I have a manager there taking decisions if I cannot communicate with them? I mean, that's bad, obviously, but we have already said that there is an office. Uh, isn't that preferable to the person in Montana taking decisions and that person being a low-level type of employee? Right. Uh, in equilibrium, I think you're right. The problem is that uh, there is a limited amount of people that you trust. So what you described, uh, it's perfectly, uh, I, I see it as perfectly consistent. It's possibly, it's absolutely possible that in the first part of the period, this was exactly what, what's happening. And indeed, we think that it was optimal back then. So conditional on wanting to set up uh, uh, an, an office in Montana, I rather pick the person that I want to be the manager that I trust. The problem is that it's not scalable. Uh, so what we think is that once conditional on any state, you have the possibility to communicate, to monitor, uh, to share information, to travel there easier. The, um, the reluctant, so how reluctant you are as a principal to put in charge a manager that is basically not in your personal uh, network, but that you need to because otherwise you're constraining the growth of the state is decreasing. Because anyway, you have more possibility to go and check or to communicate and exchange information with this person. So I think it's very much consistent. And in fact, one of the points that we wanted to make in the paper, and at the beginning we were hesitating in how much to push it, is that you know there is this big literature that is sort of opposing a personal organization with the very organization, and you know, rightly so, they're very different. But exploiting the long time horizon that we have, what we really see and what we sort of became convinced of is that the two forms of organization were sort of optimal at different phases. Um, and it's exactly echoing what you just said, basically. Uh, my second question here focuses on the uh, personal networks that you are referring to. You were saying you want to have somebody that you can trust, but I'm wondering 
who is that you, right? Like in 1817, there were already a thousand people there. Like I, I can see that if I am a grocer, um, you know, in a small shop in a neighborhood and I'm thinking of expanding, I'm going to set up another shop in a different neighborhood. I want to put my cousin there uh, and I am limited there because I only have so many cousins, right? Mm -hmm. But that organization already had a thousand people, right? Mm -hmm. So presumably it's not the president of the United States or the secretary of whatever this or that, you know, um, department who knows these potential managers that are knowing, like who, who are the people who are having these, these personal yeah. networks connections in DC? Now, uh, this is a, a marvelous question. Of course, it's difficult to answer concretely with the data, but I have the following answer. What we have uh, seen by reading and reading historical account is that this reliance of personal network was really the modus operandi. And this modus operandi was basically then declinated according to the person in charge. For example, uh, there's, a, there's a, a quote in the paper, which is very short, by the Secretary of State, answering to the your question, Daniel Webster in 1851, uh, who was basically saying, the name, the name of a man, the fittest within your role knowledge to be a naval officer, he must be a firm and energetic friend to the present administration. He must be someone that we trust. Now, our intuition, our theory is that this is basically the imprinting that is given by the Secretary of State that then uh, basically travel down in the different uh, ladder uh, of the hierarchy. So the person that is just uh, under the Secretary of State that is in charge to choose this naval officer is going to choose someone that he or she uh, trust. You're right, however, we cannot document the extent of this use. So how many pivotal uh, gatekeepers are there? It's, 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 it's very fascinating and, and, and it's something that uh, potentially we can maybe um, try to do something more. But, uh, you know, I take your point. For us, it's really the modus operandi uh, that we discover in reading and in observing what the data were revealing. Let me, let me try to rephrase this and see whether we agree. Uh, in the language in which we can put this type of hypothesis. So in a modern organization, you might have like a pyramidal structure, and this is a, uh, reflecting the lines of communication, um, delegation of power, and so on. But one thing that we have theories about and evidence about that, that it captures is monitoring relations. So let's say that the CEO monitors the CEO, the CFO, and the C okay and then this in turn uh, monitor you know the, the the lower level okay and you know like monitors go down what you're suggesting is well we could have the same type of system but now because monitoring is obviously more more difficult every person at whatever level they are is choosing people below them that they trust and that way there is like a scale of personal networks that starts at the very top and goes down in the same way that monitoring relations would in a, you know, in, in a more standard organization of today. Precisely. Precisely. Okay. So the second part, as we said, is more like causal and less descriptive. Um, you have a set of dependent variables that are the kind of things that we have been discussing throughout, like mm -hmm. presence in a county, the number of managers, turn, the number of managers turnover, and so on. The independent variable is this variable 
that uh, theoretically you are focusing on, which is changes, hopefully exogenous changes in the ability to communicate and monitor. How do you empirically capture um, this ability? Yes. So uh, as I said, the aim is basically to um, link these uh, um, changes uh, in the organization of the states with technological changes uh, that took place over this period. And we focus uh, on two, uh, two technological shocks that spread widely in the US, um, the electric telegraph and the railroads. Uh, and again, I mean, we said it already for us, this is, uh, you know, uh, two shocks that are going to increase the rulers' monitoring capacity. Um, and they are handy, empirically, uh, a staggered uh, introduction because the rollout happened at a different point in time and in different, uh, different counties, different locations across time. Okay? Uh, so we have a country year level variation uh, in DC monitoring capacity. Okay? And so we ask the following question Do our areas that get better connected to DC than to these technologies see, first of all, an increase in state presence? And then, as you said before, Jordi, we say conditional state presence. Do we see more delegation of powers from DC, more stability and less turnover, and less reliance? Let me get to the, to the specific uh, uh, measures. Uh, railroads. So railroads, uh, we heavily rely on um, a very important paper by Donaldson and Horbeck, uh, Kuji 2016, um, and uh, we calculate the time in minutes that it took to travel from DC to a given county's centroid at each point in time. Okay, so this is basically, uh, to be more concrete, the fastest route by either wagon, train, or navigation. So then this gives us a county year panel uh, from uh, the beginning of the um, 19th century to the 1905. And we have this measure, uh, a log time to DC, which is the log travel times in minutes between DC and the county C in any ERT. Okay. Now, uh, we regress this on the outcomes that we are uh, interested. Uh, just uh, without getting too much into the um, uh, estimating equation, I was, just want to mention one thing. Of course, there is a concern here. There is concern that the arrival of the railroads might be correlated with other, might be driven by other uh, factors, uh, potentially by the federal government itself. So what we do, uh, we do a set of things. So first of all, we control for the straight line distance in miles between the sea and the centroid of country C. And we interact this with county, uh, um, with the um, sorry, year fix effect. And then importantly, we have uh, a control, we include as a, as a, a control um, the market access for county C in ERT um, and the log population, the share of manufacturing employment of county C uh, in ERT. So basically, we try to capture as much as possible the underlying economic development. Um, in, in that given county. And of course, the estimation is conditional on county and year fixed effect. So just to be clear, yeah. um, the, 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 um, the concern is when the railroad arrived because that area was anyway developing uh, mm -hmm. for whatever reasons. And these reasons mm -hmm. are the ones that are driving um, the arrival of, the, of, of uh, the federal government. For instance, there was a lot of wheat being grown, and now suddenly we need to bring an inspector there that helps 
I don't know, measure the width or something, okay? Uh, and you are saying, okay, so there is this data about um, the time that it takes uh, to travel uh, to DC, and mm -hmm. this time was affected by the expense of the, of the railroad. Um, and that's fine. That's, you know, that's the measure that is potentially endogenous, okay? But we are going to control for market access. And just to be clear, what you mean by market access is how much that a county is connected not just to DC, but to everybody else as well. So to say New York, okay? Exactly. Because new maybe the railroad arrived, um, you know, in order to um, link together that county and New York because there is a big port in New York and we can export the wheat that way or something like that. Okay, so so that yeah. is, I mean, that's still the railroad, okay? But the railroad to other places. Now, what that wouldn't help you with is like maybe the railroad arrives because we set up a federal office, right? So mm -hmm. if it is that um, whenever, you know, the engineers were drawing the plans to put the railroad, the federal employees said, well, can you put it there because we have an office there and we have to go every second week and that will be faster. That's what it wouldn't help you with necessarily. True. Um, we do uh, other things uh, to check for that, uh, meaning we dynamically check whether uh, the so we basically uh, look at uh, um, lag values uh, of uh, uh, the uh, um, uh, staggered rollout of the railroads and see whether it predicts uh, the arrival of the um, of the federal government, uh, and it doesn't seem so. Uh, but uh, I want to say something theoretically. Uh, for us, um, this potential, let's call it simultaneous causality that you're mentioning, it's a problem um, up to a point, and we try to acknowledge it a lot in the paper, because at the end of the day, for us, is really conditional on state presence. How does the organizations change according, like when, when changing the, the monitoring cost, which we measure with this distance uh, in minutes? And so, you know, theoretically, it's uh, it's the real concern would be uh, even if here we're not talking about a, a, an instrument, a violation of the exclusion restriction, meaning that uh, the railroad is actually coming because there is more uh, employment, sorry, um, uh, economic activity, and this in turn is affecting uh, the arrival of the federal bureaucracy. Just again to be clear uh, on something that you mentioned, when you say that the lags don't predict the lags of the uh, dependent variable don't predict the arrival or or the um what is it this thing about the lag no no so see here the the, the estimation is basically we're 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 wondering whether the pre so let's imagine that we were focusing on county c at time t um, and uh, uh, we're you know uh, our main explanatory variable is the rollout of the um uh, of the railroads, and we have the distance uh, uh, in minutes uh, in county C at time T with DC. Uh, we want to understand uh, whether this is somehow predicted by the pre-existence presence of the federal bureaucracy, mm -hmm. of the federal government, and we don't see that. Okay, so in your main regressions, therefore, in which you use, well, we have described, you know, the, the time travel to DC that is a result of the expense of the railroad, but also the... Uh, is, you know, the, the number of telegraph connections that mm -hmm. the, the county has, what do you find 
that these things affect in terms of the type of variables that we have described earlier? Yeah, so uh, first of all, uh, when it comes to state presence, uh, what we see is that when the um, uh, distance from the sea, the, uh, the time to the sea uh, decreases, the probability of uh, state uh, presence arriving is uh, increasing significantly. Um, and then when we uh, look at the organization of the state, and so now we do conditional state presence, we see that the more connected you are to the sea, uh, the uh, higher is the amount of clerics uh, that uh, uh, you have in uh, uh, in that uh, county C at time uh, T. And this is very much true also with the telegraph connection. Uh, and importantly, uh, the more connected you are, the lower uh, is uh, the turnover. So the share of uh, uh, employees living uh, the bureaucracy and the link uh, between supervisor living and employees living. And finally, the higher is uh, delegations, uh, which, as you rightly asked before, is simply measured by the number of managers uh, which are present uh, in that office. So is, is there for the interpretation here that um, that monitoring seems to be the driving force um, I guess that it will be a little bit ambitious to say behind the expansion of the whole state, but maybe at least the driving force be behind the type of like patterns that you have uncovered in, in the first part of the paper. I think this actually helps me to understand to a question that you uh, asked uh, um, uh, at the beginning that we haven't had the chance to tackle. So we... Uh, Absolutely do want to claim uh, that uh, the theory that we're putting forward is the only possible theory to interpret the descriptive patterns that, that, that we observe. As you said, many things are happening. So the civil war is certainly a big shock. It's a shock that uh, has uh, created uh, a, 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 like a shock in supply in people working for the federal bureaucracy. Um, the Pendleton Act in 1883 is basically introducing meritocracy, uh, uh, and this, of course, is going to limit uh, the amount of spoil system and the amount of uh, turnover that we see. What we claim is that controlling, conditional uh, on, on, on these two shocks, uh, what we, because, of course, we have this long period of time that allows us to look at before and after both of them, um, the uh, theory that we're putting forward seems to provide an explanation, and this is important, to all the patterns that we have described in the, um, in the, descriptive, in the descriptive section. Uh, is, this by, is this the only possible explanation? By no means, no. Uh, it, is, it is something, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's an approach that we find particularly convincing because consistent with all the patterns that we observe. That's the way we pitch it or we would like to pitch, I guess. Well, let me uh, rephrase a little bit what, uh, what you said. So yeah, we have these patterns in there. You know, 1860 seems to be like a, a moment in which there are more locations, uh, there are more managers in these locations, um, there, are less ter there is less turnover. You know, if, if I wanted to say, you know what, that has nothing to do with the monitoring ability, that has all to do with the civil war. Okay, I will say, well, now uh, the successors of Abraham Lincoln are thinking we could have a civil war somewhere else, right? Like there is no, you know, the, if, it ha if it happened in the South, it could happen in the West, 
or in the Southwest. It would be really helpful if we had people there to tell us a little bit. I know that the communication is going to be slow, but to have a little bit the ear on the ground of what is happening. So that would explain more locations. It will also explain more managers in these locations because we need people that are educated, capable, and so on and so forth. Uh, maybe we also want to turn them over less often so that they have the opportunity to you know, gain an understanding. Okay, so in principle, I can have, you know, other explanations. Your claim is, well, those explanations maybe wouldn't be uh, creating the type of correlations with the changes in travel time to DC and everything that is the basis of our regressions. Potentially, there are, you know, like a convoluted versions of other explanations could be, co um, could be uh, consistent with these patterns as well, but ours, you know, seems to be like a natural explanation that, that, they, that explains yeah. this record. Plus, plus empirically, which I mean, I, it's, I guess it's, it's more, it's less uh, intellectually interesting, but certainly um, maybe effective, but all the results hold if we focus on the period uh, after uh, the civil war and so even within that period variation in monitoring in communication measure as we measure predict what we predict and as i said before if we instead do the opposite exercise even in focusing only in counties present only in 1817 1820 so the beginning of the period and so somehow you know ruling out all the consequences of yes the expansion of the uh, of the West and also the rearranging of the territory after the uh, loss of the Confederate States, the results hold. So, uh, but you know, more than pushing on the empirical, uh, on this empirical robustness checks, and I put it this way, uh, we, we, we really want to acknowledge in this paper this potential other alternative explanation, more demand side, if you want. Uh, but uh, and, and arguing that uh, our explanation might simply be. Uh, coherent with all these patterns that we observe. Plus, uh, there is uh, one nice last result that we haven't mentioned, um, which I'm going to simply tell you in, 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 in a minute, uh, which is that exactly talking about the civil war, what is incredibly interesting is that if you project, if you plot the federal employees per thousand of inhabitants, you see that immediately after the civil war, the percentage of southern-born um, working for the federal bureaucracy is first certainly mechanically dropped, but then it remains significantly lower than the percentage of people uh, born in the in the north. Uh, and so, you know, this is, of course, uh, has, as, as an explanation itself, there is an issue of trust. Uh, uh, you know, you don't trust uh, workers from the southern uh, ex-Confederate state. What is interesting is that uh, if we um, uh, look at variation in distance and therefore monitoring and communication, we see that the easier it is to communicate to DC, the higher is the probability after a civil war to hire southern born. Uh, because exactly, you know, you're sort of offsetting that uh, lower trust with the fact that you can actually observe and monitor uh, what this person is doing. Wonderful. Thank you, Nicola, for coming to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for a past or future episodes that you may enjoy. Introductory music and logo by Daniel Blanesiso. 
episode produced by Anderson Tan.